0: so we've been working through um, an orthodox catechism here and we've seen that uh, the catechism is broken up into to three sections which we've talked about several times but at the top of your handout there um, you'll see a, a little structure maybe a, a way to remember this and, and another way is guilt grace and gratitude um, That's sort of the the, the three pillars of an orthodox catechism. Now, we're in the grace section. So we've looked at man's condition before God as a sinner. Um, He's helpless. He's unable to do anything to save himself, to atone for his own sin. Um, Right now, we are sort of coming out of the the room of the grace section of, of the catechism. So we'll finish up... The last few questions and answers here in that second section on grace um, this middle section is really focused on our trinitarian salvation and how god as father son and holy spirit is involved and accomplishes our salvation thank you Lord. how we are free from our condemnation the condemnation that all of us by nature deserve by virtue of our union with adam we are, we are sinners, we've inherited Adam's guilt, this condemnation, um, our first father, our first parents represented us, and so we are in them. So you'll see these titles, as if you haven't noticed, as we work through the Catechism, in this grace section, you'll see the title, Man's Redemption, God the Father, Man's Redemption, God the Son, Man's Redemption, God the Holy Spirit. So there's a a pointed, intentional focus on our triune God and salvation. Because we ought to think about our salvation in Trinitarian terms. um, How the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all accomplish salvation as our one triune God. So questions 48 through 51 close out the section on man's redemption in relation to God the Son. So we'll jump right into these questions here. And if you have your catechism in front of you. Uh, Let me have someone just read question 48 for us. What fruit does the ascension of Christ into heaven bring to us? Read the answer. Yes, please. Thank you. First, that he makes intercession to his Father in heaven for us. Second, that we have our flesh in heaven, that we may be confirmed thereby as by a sure pledge that he who is our head will lift us up, his members unto him. Third, that he sends us his spirit as a pledge between him and us, by whose power we seek after not earthly things, but heavenly things, where he himself is sitting at the right hand of God. Okay, thank you. So we, we're going to talk about this morning, how does the Christian benefit? What are the fruits of Christ's ascension and his second coming? with a focus specifically on the ascension and Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father. First, he makes intercession to his Father in heaven for us. So the benefits of what Jesus has purchased for us and brings to us by his own intercession for us. Second, that we have our flesh in heaven and that we may be confirmed thereby as by a sure pledge, That language is is important. That he who is our head will lift us up, his members, unto him. Christ has been resurrected and is seated at the right hand in heavenly places with his glorified body. And we are seated with him, scripture says. We're seated with him in heavenly places. Our union with Christ is a promise such as it can be spoken about as if it's already happened we are seated with him in heavenly places. Uh, Not physically yet, uh, but the assurance of the pledge and promise is so sure it can be spoken of in those terms. Uh, Third, he sends us his Holy Spirit as a pledge between him and us by whose power we seek after, not earthly, but heavenly things, where he himself is seated or sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, Christ offered himself on the cross and shed his blood for us in our salvation. So how do we benefit from what he's done for us? How does uh, the the reward and the benefits of what Christ has purchased become ours? Essentially, by his intercession, as we we said before, but also these mercies that were purchased for us, won for us, uh, that were brought to us, by the blood of Christ They they come from heaven To us And are applied to us And sanctify us By the third person of the Trinity So we should consider That we can even Look up in um, As Colossians 1 says we, we We look up And we consider that our salvation Is with Christ in heaven We put our minds on the things above How does this happen? It's not just by sort of wrote, well, I'm just, I do it because I'm a Christian. It's what I'm supposed to do. I sort of will myself to do it. No, this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is by our triune God, and our sanctification is by the power of God working in us to even have this perspective, this resolve to put our minds on the things above. And so we want to look at a few verses and sort of, Think through this, and and think through uh, so our salvation and our sanctification in a Trinitarian way. So, first, Ephesians one twenty to twenty two. Let me have someone read that for us. Ephesians one twenty to twenty two. Go for it. Okay, so Christ has been seated in the heavenly places again, his ascension and enthronement declares his rule and authority over all things. Now, the declaration of his rule doesn 't mean that he wasn 't ruling before. Um, the declaration of his rule is additionally it 's adding additional subjects under that rule that has always been there right so um, these, the, the powers of, of hell and sin and death and, and Satan are all brought under that rule, that reign. In the Lord's enthronement, he is assuming the office of king that he had before. Jesus' earthly ministry is described um, in, as his humiliation. He did not, and, and at that time, we could say that he did not appear to be a king. Right. So we look at his uh, what scripture calls his hum- humiliation. in Isaiah 53, he's he's scourged, he's he's beaten, he's mocked, he's humiliated um, of a king. It's not said he has no place to lay his head. He's sort of this uh, uh, vagabond. Right. It, Christ isn't talked about or described in that way concerning his earthly ministry. Um, we consider Acts uh, eight thirty two to 34. Let me have someone read that for us. Acts eight, thirty two to thirty four. Now in order for <clears throat> Christ to uh, assume this office of, of king after his humiliation, um, we see that he had to endure humiliation. I think it was uh, maybe Sinclair Ferguson who talked about Christ's life and said he wasn't just suffering when he was on the cross. That was maybe the, the climax or the apex of his suffering. But his whole life can be considered one can be considered one long life of, of suffering. Um, as he um, uh, descended and as he uh, took upon himself human nature with all of its uh, infirmities. Uh, God does not uh, sweat or require sleep or rest or food, right? But Christ and the, the second person of the Trinity and his humiliation took to himself human nature and endured all of the, the sin around, them, around him in the world. Our sensitivity to sin um, isn't as sensitive as it should be because we're sinners. We're, we're fallen in our nature and because we give in to sin at times. And so we, we're, we become buddies with, with, with our corruption. Uh, Christ uh, never sinned um, and there was no corruption in him. So his sensitivity uh, to, to the sinfulness around him was to the highest degree as, as the Lord, as, as, as Christ. And so even in that sense, we can, um, I think Sinclair Ferguson rightly says that he has his whole life was one of um, humiliation and suffering. <clears throat> As our mediator, he was fulfilling all righteousness so that in his exaltation, he would be declared king over all. Now, this isn't an arbitrary title. It's this, this title, king or governor, is directly related to Christ dying for and winning back all that was rightfully his given to him by the father, the elect. Now, now that Christ is seated at the right hand, which is a sign of authority, he continues to protect and mediate for his sheep by interceding for them. Now, we talk about intercession and the word intercede. Um, someone just give me a quick, pithy definition of intercede or intercession. How would you define that? Just a few words. Norm? Yeah, yep, exactly that. Yep, to go before someone on another's behalf, right? Now, let's, let's take a look at Isaiah 53, um, verse 11 through 12. Now, I want us to think about, as we look at these next few verses, Christ as our intercessor, Christ who intercedes for us. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Um, someone read Isaiah 53, through 12. Thank you. Now, I like um, the language of Isaiah 53 in the NASB. As you look at that, that first verse, uh, the first part of verse 11 there, as a result of the anguish of his soul. So we're thinking about the intercession of Christ in his uh, current uh, office as, as governor and ruler at the right hand of the Father. Christ's intercession now as a result of the anguish of his soul. And you drop down to the end of verse 12. Yet he bore, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. He intercedes for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 explains the agony of Christ and the subsequent benefit to us of that agony. agony. Here, Christ's humiliation, his suffering, his death, are connected with us being beneficiaries of what he accomplishes. He took the punishment, we enjoy the benefits. As our mediator, he not only lives and dies for us, but he also intercedes for us. Jesus makes intercession to the Father in heaven right now for us. Sinus, the author of the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, he talks about the perpetual Force of the virtue of the sacrifice of Christ the father is forevermore he says approving of the satisfaction of Christ as a sufficient atonement for our sins when we sin because of Christ's perpetual sufficient atonement as our high priest our sins go before the father as covered by the shed blood of Christ's righteousness so when Satan charges us those charges could stick. They should stick apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But even now, because of Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, God has sworn by his own name, not to count us as anything else but righteous because of the blood of Christ. As our sins, we sin now, our prayers are tainted in some sense with some, some, some hue of, of sin. Um, our, our good works. Why does God reward our good works? They're not perfect. They're not um, without sin. They're not perfectly righteous before God. Um, Christ's precious blood is how and why, uh, so that we can be considered um, righteous before God. And that, that language of pledge in this, this section of the, the catechism, that's what it's getting at. Um, This relationship, uh, this covenantal relationship between the father and the son in which the father promises to give the son all that's rewarded to him. And by his own name has determined not to consider us as anything but righteous. That's what keeps the Christian. Not our own sort of strength, not our own will, not our own know-how, not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. In, In difficult seasons and trials and suffering, uh, the Christian looks up to the uh, to the author and finisher of their faith because of the spirit, by virtue of what Christ has purchased for us. So we can take credit for nothing. <laughs> our strength and strong seasons, our strength and weak seasons all come because of Christ's mediation for us. Uh, Romans 8, to 34 says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And how does that end? Who indeed is interceding for us. Even now, Christ is interceding for us. Christ's intercession for us is the reason we enjoy the benefits of salvation. And we take a hold of those blessings and benefits spiritually because of the Holy Spirit who brings them to us. Now, this question and and answer um, that we're we're looking at here, uh, again, communicate the benefits of the ascension of Christ and that he is um, the first fruits of what we will be. It talks about the promise assurance of that as well, that we have our flesh in heaven, that we may be confirmed thereby as a pledge that he who is our head will lift up, will lift us up his members unto him. Has, has someone ever asked you or have you thought about what is Christ doing right now in heaven? What, what, what comes to mind for you? Or maybe some things that you've heard people maybe think or that you thought, whether it's, you know, biblically grounded or not, it's fine. But what, what comes to mind for you when you think, well, what is Christ doing in heaven right now? Or maybe if you've heard someone answer that question. Any thoughts? Hebrews said he's making intercession for us. He is making intercession for us. Yes, that is the biblical and right answer. You get an A. Norm. I think in a way he's building for us that he did for
1: Peter said, I'm praying that your faith yeah. shall not fail. So as we saw in first Peter, that everything we go through
0: is cured by and strengthen our faith. So sacrifices, right right yeah, yeah, amen yep, that's really important that Hebrews text that he sat down pointing to his authority, his enthronement, his uh, supreme governing of all things but also to the finished work he no longer stands making daily sacrifice, but he has sat down once and for all amen, any other thoughts on that? Yes. Yep. That is another benefit of Christ's ascension, that all his enemies are being brought under subjection to him, which we'll talk about. Norm? Can you repeat what he said? He said all of his enemies are being brought under subjection. The Father's bringing all his enemies in submission and under subjection. Yep. Psalm 110. Yep. Any other thoughts on that? Y'all are solid. You know your Bibles. (laughs) Taking all my juice away, um, John fourteen two. Let me have someone read that. John fourteen two. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go, and pre- for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Uh, Okay, thank you. So we know from this text that in between Christ's first and second coming, he is preparing. Now, this is a mystery. What exactly does it look like for Christ to prepare a a place for us? We have the the testimony, the evidence of scripture, but it's hard for us to to conceive of that. Uh, Christ is currently in heaven with a uh, glorious... A human body. remember John 20, Jesus said to Thomas, um, he says, reach here, Uh, put your your hand in my side, touch my 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 hand. You know, at times I've had um, conversation with with folks in the past um, and myself, I used to maybe have these ideas that uh, when Christ went to heaven, like when he when he came, when he descended, came to earth, he took a human nature. But when he went to heaven, he put the human nature off, or he left it here and then ascended. But scripture doesn't say that. It says that he currently has uh, a human body. Um, and we see this testimony in, in, in John 20 when he's talking to Thomas. Again, reach here your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Jesus ascended with a glorified human body. He is the prototype of what we can expect to be. Even the, his assuming and uh, remaining in a human body uh, is a benefit to the Christian, which we'll, we'll talk about. Um, everything that the second person of the Trinity assumed in his humiliation, his human body and soul, and glorified at, at his exaltation, we will enjoy when we are raised from the dead. So we have the assurance of this uh, through, through the branding of the Holy Spirit. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit now is proof and testimony that we will be like what Christ is. Um, the will of the Father and the Son in complete agreement to accomplish our salvation included includes the redemption of our bodies. Christ was raised as satisfaction and is ascended as proof. So Christ's ascension secures the fact that when we die we will be raised and get new bodies so whatever infirmities not just sort of common um what's what's common to human nature like sleep and rest and food but sickness and uh, death and uh pains at childbirth um that's not just for you Anna (laughs) all these things they'll be done away with as we age and I was doing some exercises uh, at, at the house, and it was either my wife, or one of my kids. They were like, why are your knees cracking like that? <laughs> Is that you? It was, it was, it was probably Kate in there. It's Like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm getting old. I don't know. But all of this will be done away with. No more, no more of this, this pain. And, you know, I know there are others of our, our brothers and sisters. Norm would be quick to remind me, young man, you've got a long way to go. Whatever infirmities you feel now, brother, will be done away with, <laughs> and that on that great day. But this is an assurance of us or to us because of Christ's ascension. Um, let's look at First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses twenty to twenty-three. Let me have someone read out, read that in the handout there. All right. And then Ephesians 2, six. I'll have someone read that? And us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly in All right. I'm going to read a quote there. I think it's in your handout too. This quote from John Gill. It's longer, but I think it's it's helpful for us to sort of think about this in this way. Um, he says Christ is entered into heaven as the forerunner to take possession of it for his people in their name and to prepare mansions of glory for them. And in these they sit, which imports honor, pleasure, rest from labor and weariness and safety and security. And what adds to the happiness of this is that it is together with all the saints and with Christ himself. And in these they are made to sit already, which is so said, because of the certainty of it, for the same glory Christ has, they shall have, and because of their right to such a blessing, and chiefly because Christ their head is set down therein, who sustains their persons, bears their names on his heart and represents them. Encouraging, true, glorious words about what we have by virtue of our union with Christ. Seated with Christ, there's so much in those, in those words, seated with him in heavenly places. There's so many benefits of that that you don't even have time to explore. Um, but we want to look at a few of them. Um, third, the third benefit of Christ's ascension is that he sends us his spirit as a pledge between him and us, whose, or by whose power we seek after not earthly but heavenly things, for he himself is sitting at the right hand of God. Uh, John fourteen sixteen. Let me have someone read that for us. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Thank you. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 5 says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave the Spirit as a pledge or down payment um, of essentially what is to come. So when, when the Christian can um, say no to sin, or when they see themselves bearing the fruit of righteousness or patience or peace or long suffering or kindness, all of these things are evidences. Um, they are the fruit of the down payment of the assurance that we will fully grasp and fully attain and fully have within our possession, God, the fullness of our salvation, perfect fellowship with our triune God. So even when we see uh, traces of of fruit in our life, um, we shouldn't be discouraged and say, man, I'm not bearing as much fruit as I desire. There ought to be sort of a, a holy zeal there to bear fruit, of course. But rather than going to discouragement first, we should say, thank God for this fruit because it's assurance that one day I will be brought into the full possession of my salvation. It should point us and drive us forward rather than back in discouragement. When we can see any signs of new life and our, our, our pilgrimage and our walk with Christ, it ought to cause us to consider with thankfulness that God has given us the down payment, which is the Holy Spirit, um, uh, a, a partial or a down payment of the full possession of what we will have um, in the future. Um Ephesians 13:14 let me have someone read that for us thank you again there's so much there Um, you hear the gospel you believe you're sealed with the promised holy spirit who is a pledge of our inheritance right you get a you god graciously gives us this pledge this this brand this seal um, of our full inheritance Um, our glorification we know is is future we do not fully possess the fullness of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is, again, that pledge of, that God will sort of step by step, little by little, give us the mercy and grace that we need to accomplish his good purpose. And um, namely, the fullness of our salvation. Ephesians 1.13, um, the third person of the Trinity is referred to as the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this designation of promised Holy Spirit is... On one side, the Father or the, the Spirit of the Christ promises to send the, uh, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit. That promise is fulfilled in that sense. But on the other side, is he's a promised Holy Spirit because he is the guarantee of what has been promised that we will f- take full possession of. And so there's, he, he's the promised Holy Spirit in that sense. He causes us to... Um, with a gaze forward or to heaven, um, know that we will take possession of the fullness of our salvation. And so, it looks back on what Christ has promised, but it also looks forward on what what Christ has promised um, that that we will that we will enjoy. Um, second, or rather, First Thessalonians two thirteen, it says, "For this reason, we also constantly thank God when when." Sorry. Thank thank God that when you receive the word of truth, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of mere men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. That's sort of what I was getting at earlier when I talked about looking at fruit with encouragement, that the word is at work in us. It's currently um, churning and Turning and changing, and killing old affections and raising new affections, now in the life of the Christian, it's it's at work in us. This is by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is given to us by Christ's mediation. So we can ask, how can this be true again? How do we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Um, how do we um, love? and uh, forgive and bear patiently with one another. The Holy Spirit is bringing us the word of God with the benefits of sanctification. Christ purchased our sanctification by his mediation on our behalf. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to bring the rewards of those benefits of what Christ purchased from heaven to us. A quote by... uh, Barcellos here, just a quick line. He says, our future inheritance is no less sure than the Spirit's present ministry in us. Our future inheritance is no less sure than the present than the Spirit's present ministry in us. Which is again, very encouraging. All right, let's jump to question 49. Probably spent more time on that than I should have, but. Question 49. I have a nine-page handout, and we're on page five. So we may or may not get through the whole thing, but we'll get to what we can. Let me have someone read question and answer to 49. Why is it further said he sits at the right hand of God? Answer, because Christ is ascended into heaven to show there that he is the head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. Okay. this gets uh, back to the point we stated earlier his ascension and enthronement declares his rule and authority over all things as our mediator he was fulfilling all righteousness so that in his exaltation he would be declared the king over all Uh, the gospel is a declaration of who christ is and what he has done Um, it's also a declaration of his kingship and his ascension as the governor of all things. And so, when we, when we think about how we proclaim the gospel even, uh, there ought to be in there some element in the realization that Christ is currently governing all things. Um, and, as we'll talk about in the last question, there will be a day of, of recompense because all authority has been given to him to exercise right judgment, over all things, even the souls of men. But sort of stepping back here, what does it mean to sit at the right hand of God, to be at the right hand of the Father? What does that mean? Let me hear some of your thoughts. What comes to mind for you? So most people are right-handed. Okay. <laughs> so with your right hand, what you do, that's where all powerful left hand is forward, front, hmm. supporting you. Yeah. Yeah. So when it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, let's say that basically all the power of power is through Christ. Amen. So Christ is the power is the right hand. Yeah. Yep. Well said. That's absolutely right. I'm going to look at some verses to, to back up what you said there. Um, Psalm 118.16. I'll have you read that since you uh, so helpfully <laughs> articulated that. Yes. Exodus fifteen sixteen says your right hand, Lord, is majesty and power. Your right hand, Lord, destroys the enemy. The right hand of God signifies omnipotence, unmatched and immeasurable power to sit at God's right hand means that Jesus is co-equal with God in his reign and rule as he governs over all things, um, even concerning judgment. John five twenty two says, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. In relation to this ascension, this is where we start to capture more of the significance of the phrase right hand. When a king wants to show, his, uh, show public honor to someone, they would sit at them, or they would sit them at their right hand. But this also included entrusting certain offices and duties or rule to the one at the right hand. Christ sitting at the right hand of the father is being exalted as the mediator and governor of all things. Um, Ephesians 1 20 to 23 again says, Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this way, with supreme authority, Christ continues to function as our prophet, priest, and king. Now, I thought, I should spend more time talking about the prophet priest and king aspect of this um, because it's really helpful and encouraging and important. And I don't want to rush through the rest of it. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to stop and we'll just make this a two part. I'll pick up the, the next uh, couple questions next week. So Arnie, you get a break, brother. Take it. Enjoy it. <laughs> And then we'll continue uh, there. So sorry for the abrupt.